0: Peace. Peace. It's a nice word, isn't it? Peace. We like that word, peace. Where do you go for peace? A quiet room with a good book and a quality cup of coffee. Now, if you know what a quality cup of coffee is, if you don't know what it is, go talk to Trevor Brinkley or John Williquit, you'll find out what that is. Uh, it's not a Keurig, okay? Um, How about a stroll by the river on a nice, beautiful spring day? That peace. For some people, mainly ladies, it's peace to go to a day spa. Now, I personally couldn't think of anything more stressful than spending time in a day spa. Okay? (laughs) Uh, I I think I would sit in a chair and no matter how comfortable that chair is, even if it's a massage one, Um, If someone touched my nasty feet, it would not be a state of peace for me. I know what would be going on in my mind. I would be saying to myself, are you really sure you want to touch those nasty things? No, stop massaging them. You don't want to do that. That's gross. Ladies, I don't want to ruin pedicures for you, but that's just not peace for me, okay? If it's peace for you, good. How about walking into a church... Is that peace, walking into a church? Does that come close to your definition of peace? Getting people from all different walks of life together in one room, for, for many people that does not sound like peace. But that's exactly what the, the Apostle Paul today says that can and should be in the church who is in Jesus Christ. This should be a place of and a people, we should be a people of peace. Now, I know over the years that the church can get it wrong. We've talked about that many times, right? Church is messy. Uh, we have to look around us. We're going to see examples where it's not really peace, where, you know, sometimes in a church it's anything other p- than peace. But I'll tell you this right now. It's not that when we are looking away from Christ and we are walking away from the truth that is in his church, but when we look to Christ and when we apply the truth that, he's, that he has given us in his word, brothers and sisters in this church family, it is peace, it is peace. The church is actually a haven of peace in a tumultuous world. People should be able to sit among us and look among us, and I believe in our church they can, praise God, and, and see something in us and say, That's, that these people have this peace, this inner peace, individually and a peace together that, that is displayed, and, and I want that. I want that. Now, before we begin, uh, if you're a visitor with us this morning, and we have a few, and I don't know you... Um, I want to make something really, really clear before we start talking about this peace that, a, that is a peace that should corporately be in the church, in the church that is in the faith in Jesus Christ. Um, individually, please hear me, you will never understand true peace, the nature of true peace, unless you have peace with God yourself, which only comes through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you will understand peace. The peace understood among the church is only understood on the basis of the individual peace that each of us in the church have when we've, that we've experienced because through faith in Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection for us on the cross, his defeat of our sin and, and judgment it, because of what he's done for us, we are no longer enemies with God. We are at peace with God. We have been forgiven of our sin against God. We have been punished. Uh, Our our sin, sorry, has been punished on, on Jesus instead of us. And we have been reconciled to God through turning from our sin and putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sin and rose again. That's a mess. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is a message of peace. And it's the only way that you can know the true nature of peace that truly is eternal peace. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You don't have to worry about the day that you die. Let me plead with you today that peace starts with individual repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose for you again uh, for peace with God. Now, last week, as we come to our section of Scripture and we're in First Thessalonians chapter five, please open your Bibles there, and we're going to end where we we're going to start where we ended last week at verse thirteen. There's this section of closing comments in this letter. We've been in this letter for a number of months, verse by verse through this letter. Uh, to a church in Thessalonica, a city that still exists today in Greece. And all the way through this letter, we have seen in this good church that Paul has made some corrections, hasn't he? He's, He's had to correct some people in the church. At least some of them needed it. And this is a good church, but he wants them to keep growing in Christ, living in unity and peace with each other while the world around them is in opposition to them. And so last week he asked them, uh, as they come to the end of this letter, esteem the work of your leaders, the work of those who are among you who's going to, who are going to take the instructions from Paul and seek to lead in these instructions as they are applied to the hearts and minds of those in the church. So esteem that work highly as they seek to imply that encouragement and correction. And as we come now into more of the final instructions for the whole church, we're going to approach these kind of bullet instructions that are going to come out from verse 14 through to uh, around about 21 this morning. And we're going to approach these instructions, but before we do, we have to look at verse 13 because it's kind of the open door to these verses. Paul, at the end of verse 13, says to the Thessalonians, Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. And then he goes on and says, and we urge you. So it's moving on from that instruction. And so the whole context of what we're about to see in these bullet point instructions that Paul is giving is uh, Paul helping the church to say, this is, this is really important if you are to be a church of unity and peace in a tumultuous world. Now, Paul says the verse, end of verse 13 as a command. Be at peace, which means there's some intentionality behind it. There's, he's, he's asking us to do something about this, to be intentional about it. So how does the church continue to mature in, together in Christ in peace and unity? That's kind of the question we're asking. How does the church do that? And then we get these final bullet point surge of instructions. Let me summarize it all just this way as we look from verse 14 through to 21 in chapter 5. The unity and peace of the church depends on our individual responsibility to lead each other in Christ. Now that's kind of a blanket statement today, gets much more detailed than that but I think that's the overview. We've got to take responsibility individually intentionality to lead each other in Christ for the sake of unity and peace in the church. But what does that look like? Uh, look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. I'm going to read from the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I'm just going to stop there at verse 15 first, because I think what they, those verses basically tell us is that in this unity and peace, how are we going to do that intentionally? We'll have peace among you by long suffering together, by long suffering in all of these different ways together. Look at verse 14, Paul's now just requesting, is not not only requesting this church to respect and esteem the work of the elders, but he's really urging how this whole church leads each other. Leaders are not really specifically mentioned in this passage. They're mentioned before, but they're not out of the scene. I think Paul does expect the leaders to lead in this. But we see this instruction to the whole church, don't we? And it's really the whole church are to lead each other in this way. And let's also notice, please notice that for the the 13th time now 13th time he says brothers or brethren which is brothers and sisters okay his dear family is what he's saying 13 times he does that in this letter there's a familial nature to this letter if you miss it you miss the very heart of the apostle paul this is the kind of guy he is he's gentle he's loving he's kind he's a father he's a nursing mother he's all of those things brothers And this urging is to Paul's whole family in Christ, in Thessalonica. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, we urge you, my dear family, and look at the first word, admonish, admonish the idol. That's the same word we looked at last week. Do you remember? We said that leaders admonish, don't they? We we had that in those previous verses. That admonish comes from the Greek word noustheo. We, many of us in this room, know of nousthetic counselling—that is now biblical counselling, the counselling that comes alongside each other to teach and instruct and correct, as we saw last week. Well, who are we counselling and admonishing? In the ESV, the word is the idol. Admonish the idol. If you have an NASB, I hate acknowledging this because then Jeremy always gets to say, see, I told you so, NASB is a better translation. Um, sometimes it is. Uh, in the NASB, uh, it says, unruly. Uh, I think that's in the KJV as well. It, it, the word, in the original sense, it, it actually means that the direct translation is disruptive or disorderly. Disruptive or disorderly? Admonish the disruptive. Admonish the disorderly. Now, I think the reason that the ESV and a couple of other translations have translated it as admonish the idle is because in Thessalonica, I think the disruptive and the disorderly were the idle. Those who were causing disruption in the church by being lazy because they had a wrong view of certain things, expecting everybody to look after them and not being loving and, and working for themselves and, and just expecting others to serve them. So, so uh, some translators, translations have seen these two and they've, they've said, okay, it's an interpretive decision here in uh, a- admonish the idol, but it really is a greater sense than idleness. It's, it's more disorder. It's more that out-of-line type of behavior among you, that kind of behavior among you that won't really please Christ. And so, if we want peace in the church, we need to come along, alongside those people, alongside the disruptive and the orderly, disorderly, Sorry, and counsel, and admonish, and help, and teach, and instruct. It's not just a simple warning and go away. You don't go up to those people and simply say, stop it. It's, it's not... The thing to do here there's an admonishing which means there's an instruction which means there's a counsel there's a teaching that needs to happen you're coming alongside someone and helping them to see how their words and behaviors are not in line with what Christ wants for his church and believe me that takes time lots of face-to-face time and actually love for the brother or sister who's in that category even while they're being a disruption it's not easy to do is it well ask a parent. They're forced to do it, under the same roof for a good 18 to 20 years, right? Not only admonish the disorderly, encourage the faint-hearted or the discouraged. Encourage the discouraged. Console the discouraged. I think we can guess, probably, if you've been paying attention, who the faint-hearted are in this letter in, to, to Thessalonica. Um, there were those who were grieving, excessive grief, over the loss of their brothers and sisters because they had an an understanding that was wrong about the return of Jesus. And so they didn't know what's going to happen. They've missed, they're they're already dead and Jesus hasn't returned yet. Are they going to miss that? And there was an excessive grief. But they had a misunderstanding about the return of Christ. So they can be truly encouraged in the correction that Paul has written here when we come around them with that. Perhaps it's more than that, though. Uh, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, even into chapter 3, we read that this church was experiencing some serious persecution and opposition from the community around them. And what was being attacked was the very validity of the gospel that came to them from Paul, Silas, and Timothy And so these people can be encouraged by the instruction written to them that they actually do have really good reasons for authentically standing in the gospel and knowing its truth. So there are two good examples of this right there in in this letter in Thessalonica. But I think there's, you know, we could say many examples that we have even around us today. And we come around each other with God's word and in God's love to console and encourage each other in the Lord. There's something that I hope that as we go through these little bullet points that Paul is giving here, we're urged to admonish, we're urged to encourage each other. Means we have to know about each other, don't we? Even the difficult things, even the disruptive and the disorderly things, but the things that make us weak, the things that make us discouraged and downhearted. The church, when you read this, the church is not a family of individuals who are more concerned about their private lives. That's our culture, right? Don't get up too much, don't get too close up to my face, right? Don't get up in my business. That's kind of the culture that we live in. There's, we love our privacy, we love to, to be away, to, to be on our own, to... To to not be around, you know, uh, other people trying to understand what our life is like. That's not the church. There is not one person in the church, in our church, brothers and sisters, who can ask what Cain asks, what, what God asked, uh, what Cain, sorry, what Cain's response to God was when he killed his brother Abel. Do you do you remember what that response was? Whereas Abel, am I my brother's keeper am i my brother's keeper am i really responsible for my brother here's the answer in the church yes yes you are yes you are we all are if one is acting in a way that affects others we come around that person with counsel from god's word with truth and instruction and counsel if one is discouraged in the face faith because of some affliction or opposition or even grief we come around them with consolation with encouragement from god's word and paul then also says help the weak well who is that at some stage or other isn't that all of us this word weak here in our english translations could just as well be translated as sick help the sick well we've had plenty of that haven't we among us difficulty difficulty Help, help them. Thinking of the Bauschers here with us today and and everything that they have to do with Eva. Help them, help them. Everybody who has to deal with hardship and tragedy just simply because we're human and the church is, here's the difference between the church and and the world. We we embrace weak. We embrace neediness. We walk alongside disruptiveness and disorderly. and help, and encourage and admonish. The church is not a place where only the strong survive. The church is a place where we grasp and, and hold and hug and help the disorderly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. We're concerned for the sick. We're concerned for the elderly and the injured and the helpless and the poor and the orphaned. We're concerned for the single mum and the single dad, the abandoned spouse and the grief-stricken and even the disruptive and the disorderly. And look at what Paul calls us to in these three statements. Look at the end of these three statements. Be patient with them all. Now, do you know how many times as a pastor I've actually said this statement to myself? I've, I've needed to remind myself of these words over the years in, in my work as a pastor. Be patient with them all. And listen, it's not because you're an unruly bunch of people and I have to be patient with you. I'm not finding that. It's more of this point. I need to be constantly reminded that the work of ministry is a ministry for the long run. It's not a ministry where you can just say one word to somebody and just think it's that. It's all done. When we walk beside each other. We get into the mud with each other. It's this. The word here, actually, for patient, Paul could use a couple of different words. He doesn't use one that's used most often in the New Testament, which is simply the word patient, like, hey, Stephen, be patient. Dinner's nearly ready. It's not that. It's a, it's a very intense word that means long-suffering relationally with people. Now, think about those particularly who may be disorderly, causing a little disruption in some things that they're saying and and doing behaviors like idleness or whatever else and causing others to to serve them and and in a, in a way that's just not fair and not loving. And you know, we might want to just say, listen, cut it out, stop it immediately, just cut it out. But long suffering doesn't let us do that. Now I'm not talking about the disorderly or the disruptive as being divisive in a heretical gospel hurting way that's something different I don't think Paul is talking about that here he talks about it later we're going to get to that today Um, but I think he's saying that in each of these instances whether disorderly discouraged weak we have to have the long view the long suffering view in mind as we bear with each other in love to counsel and encourage and console and help each other do it when it hurts Do it when it's not convenient. Do it when it's taking longer than you think it should. Be long suffering. That's the attitude of the church that seeks to be at peace with each other. And the attitude is immediately seen in verse 15. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays evil, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's how long-suffering ministry looks in the church. Whatever happens in the church. We don't take our own justice on the basis of our own perceived evil or perceived offence. In, we don't take that into our own hands against a brother or sister. We don't act on our own to put down opposition. We don't just push somebody away because they're inconvenient for us. And Jesus made that very clear on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think right here in this, in this verse in 15, Paul is actually referring directly back to what Jesus has already taught his disciples. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42 on the screen. Uh, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but I say to you do not resist the one who is evil but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other also if anyone would sue you and take your tunic let him have your cloak as well if anyone forces you to go one mile go with him two miles give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you tell me By the way, anyone in this world who would say, oh, I agree with that. I think we should do that. If someone steals from me, I'll give them a little bit more. Tell me anyone in the world that would say that. We we heard exactly those sentiments in our reading this morning also in Romans chapter 12, didn't we, if you were listening and watching. So, So just look at these words in verse 15 that see to it that no one, no one repays anyone for evil, for evil. Always seek or pursue, that's a very active word, always pursue to do good to one another and to everyone. Look at those all-encompassing words. No one, everyone, anyone, everyone. So when there's a, a, a disagreement or a disruption or someone is discouraged or hurting in the church, there's no room for any of us to simply say, get over it or stop it. No one repays anyone evil. Everyone pursues good for each other and everyone. Someone might say, well, that just causes the church to be total pushovers. Here's my response so be it. We're a people of love. We're a people of long suffering. We're a people of patience. We're a people of Christ. We're not a people of rights. Don't you dare infringe my rights. The concern is not about what it means for me. Just think about the conversations we have as a result of these verses. It's, it's not about how it impacts my life. It's not about how it impacts my rights or, or how right needs to be done by me. It, it sounds m- much more like we want to come alongside you and help you. We want to win them. We want to encourage and help them and actively pursue good for them. So let me ask you, in whatever difficult thing we need to do for each other, don't you think thinking this way might change the way that we approach that? <laughs> don't you think there might be a special flavour in which the church deals with these issues in comparison to what we see in the world? We're just doing hard things in the most Christ-honouring way of peace. Have peace among you by being long-suffering together and then have peace Among you by being God-focused. Have peace among yourselves by being God-focused together. Look at verse 16 to 18. Again, more little bullets. Verse 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice. Constant prayer and thanksgiving and i think paul is reminding the thessalonians of actually some things that they have already heard we've seen these words in this letter we've seen these phrases in this letter first thessalonians chapter one verse two paul already modeled this for the church it says, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Constant thanksgiving and prayer from the apostle for this church. He wants to model that because there's a really good reason they need to see it but there's already something in them that he's really thankful for. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, greater uh, Greece as we see it today. See, the, the apostle is constantly giving thanks for them, constantly praying for them and and seeing that there's already a joy or rejoicing in them in the holy spirit even in the face of the holy of opposition now why is this so important to mention why why these three bullet points here brothers and sisters i think there's a common denominator in these three bullet points let's think about what this common denominator is first before we get to that this church he's talking to them corporately isn't he this letter would be read out to a bunch of people gathered together as the church brothers brethren brothers and sisters they're all hearing this being read and so these commands are to a corporate people who meet together this is supposed to be the glue of who they are when they come together as the body of christ and so what's the common denominator in this for us all corporately to take Well, every single one of these words, these terms, constant prayer, thanksgiving, rejoicing, they have a direction. And that direction is upward, isn't it? Upward. So when Paul says rejoice always, he's not not just saying rejoice horizontally as as if to say this. He's not telling them to have some morbid joy as if to say, yay, I'm so happy, I'm suffering Yay, I'm so happy I'm being persecuted. No, he's saying in the midst, in the middle of any and every circumstance, the church comes together, in the middle of whatever they're going through, they come together and they never forget that God is where we're directed. In every circumstance, God is where we find our joy no matter what. God is who we can give thanks to in the middle of whatever we're going through. God is who we trust in our prayers because we know he hears us. So these quick bursts of instruction here are instructions that the church sees that they, what do they need to protect? They need to protect a focus that looks up to God. That's a distinguishing factor for the church, isn't it? we look up we don't just look across we don't just look in our circumstance we're just not focused only on this pinpoint thing in our situation we look up and because we can look up we can know something beautiful about this see don't miss that we're also told paul says that this is god's will for us in christ do you know what god's will for you as a christian is please please see this if you're in christ if you are in Christ, if you've come to faith in Jesus, you can see that you are a part of a family of Christ that knows joy in the midst of suffering, that knows thanksgiving even in the midst of suffering. They can still cling on to that They know that God hears their prayers. Why? Why do they know that? Because, brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven and you have a God who loves you and wants to hear you and has saved you for all of eternity. Your biggest problem is solved. Joy. Rejoice. Thank him and always pray to him because he loves you and hears you. Because of what Christ has done for you. See, if your hope is only in this world... What's joy and suffering? What is thanksgiving and difficulty? What is, what is it to yell out hopelessly thinking that nobody hears? But in Christ, if everything in this world is lost to you, if everything is lost, you still have everything in God who has saved you for all of eternity. So the church is the ultimate place of peace. Because Jesus is the... Only true eternal hope for the whole world. So let's protect it. Let's protect this upward focus toward God and let's lead each other in this way. And that's actually why I think Paul then moves to this last few incredible bullet points that's caused us a lot of confusion. Have peace among you... By embracing God's word together. Have peace among you by embracing God's word together. Let's look at this last section. Verse 19 to 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Uh, I really hope every Christian in this room is in agreement this morning that the Holy Spirit is God who is present with us, who is dwelling with us and working among his church. And we hear and obey and apply his word and he works in us, doesn't he? Do you believe it? I hope you believe it. I hope we can say not only we believe it but that there's, a, there's this sweet spirit of unity and peace in our church that accompanies that that is the work of the holy spirit in and through the work of the ministry of his word experienced by us so this is the work of the spirit among us he does have a ministry of peace in his children and we've seen in this letter already that the thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5 they received the gospel in the power of the holy spirit in full conviction the Holy Spirit has done a work of justification, of saving in them. In chapter 4, verse 8, we saw that the work of sanctification is a work of the Spirit among them. God making us holy like he is holy, making us more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. It's a work of the Spirit. It's not to be re- disregarded. The Spirit works through his word in the life of the church, in, in salvation, in justification, and in sanctification, in making us holy, and and this is the active work of the Word of God in the life of the church. That's why I think the next verses in verse 20 to 22 are vitally important for the ministry of peace in the church. Don't quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Well... How do we not quench the Spirit? We need him to do this work among us, and it's a work of peace. How do we not quench the Spirit? And then we have this next statement, do not despise prophecies. And there, a lot of us, flags are raised, our little antennas are raised, right? What are you? Okay. Uh, I know that because of confusion in the modern church, we could take probably the next five Sundays talking about the nature of the word prophecy. Um. The most important question for me is what it means here and what it meant for the Thessalonians reading this letter. And I'm not going to say that there's no hardship in that because this letter is written in a time called the Apostolic Era. The Apostolic Era when the Apostles, those who were the direct witnesses of Jesus are still walking around giving inspired word from God, inerrant inspired word from God to the church. Now we have that, not here in us today. There's no apostles. Here is where we have it, in the word of God, in the New Testament, in the Gospels and the New Testament letters. Um, But the apostles are around, speaking direct revelation from God as a witness of Christ, uh, we also uh, have evidence in, in the Gospels, in the book of Luke, of, uh, 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 not the, sorry, in the book of Acts, actually, that Luke wrote, uh, of uh, a ministry. Some people who were giving prophetic truth for the church, they see, seem to be inspired prophets, even at the time. Agabus is a good exo- example in Acts chapter 11. But mostly, whenever we see about this word prophecy or prophetic ministry, even in the whole of the Bible, that it's mostly a spoken word that simply brings edification and instruction from the word of God. So I, I want you to look closely at this verse. Paul, Paul says, do not despise prophecies. He does not say, do not despise prophets here. Uh, I think that's a significant statement. He's talking about prophecies. Now, the simple definition, I think, of prophecy is words that are spoken in the name of the Lord. Words that are spoken in the name of the Lord. Um, And so denying prophecies is actually different to a special role for inspired prophets and apostles in the establishment of the church in the apostolic era. So whatever people like Agabus and others were for the establishment of the church, I think Paul already makes it pretty clear about those specific roles who, that were inspired roles. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, let's, let's look at what he already wrote to the, the, the church in Ephesus. He said, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, some people look at that word prophets there and believe that it's Old Testament prophets. That could be true. In other words... God supplied a foundation for the church. When you build a house, once you've built a foundation, do you build another one? No. You build on it. You don't build it again. It's done. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Christ is always the cornerstone. You and I now have the completed canon of Scripture. We do have that foundation. We don't have apostles and prophets among us. We have the foundation right here, the foundation that that is given us through those men, God speaking through them. It is called the Word of God, both Old and New Testaments. This is the direct revelation of God to us. The foundation is laid. We have it in our hands. So... Paul is saying, do not despise prophecy. What is he saying? Well, I, well I, I think a good assumption is this. Do not despise words spoken in the name of the Lord. Don't despise that. Even though some get it wrong and they say very wrong things that causes disruption and disorder and problems in the church. Well, where is that? I think if we think about this Thessalonian church, I think particularly the the, the whole confusion around the second coming caused grief among people and even maybe idleness. And so that caused some disruption and caused problems. And just because people were speaking erroneous things, wrong things, supposedly in the name of the Lord, doesn't mean you should go around rejecting the good strong things that actually do edify the church. So that's why we sometimes need correction. That's still true today. There are people walking around saying wrong things, silly things about all sorts of doctrines, also about the second coming today, causing people to look at newspapers more than Christ, that sort of thing. And they disrupt the church, not just second coming and eschatology, but in all sorts of places. And we need to simply learn to assess and reject those things and not throw all good solid teaching out the window For the edification of the church. Paul says, test everything. Test everything spoken in the name of the Lord. Well, how do we test it? Well, the Bible gives us lots of ways of uh, 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 testing things, evaluating what is said among us. I'm not going to go through them all today, but I think one really good one is from the Apostle John. John, in his first letter of John, uh, let's look at this chapter 4, verse 6. We are... John says we are from God when he's saying we here he's saying we the apostles who are the direct witnesses of Christ writing to you as those inspired with the inspired word of God we are from God whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so when John says us, he's meaning the apostles. If you want to test any spoken word in the name of the Lord, whether even even this is good for the Thessalonians who don't have a final finished New Testament canon of Scripture yet, test it by the word of the apostles who are the direct witnesses of Christ bringing the word of God. We have it. Test it that way. Test it, brothers and sisters, by the word of God. So, any spoken word, um, including what is spoken to you right now from this mouth, test it. How? By the word of God. Why? Because there is one sole, solid, inspired, authoritative, inerrant, fallible, infallible source of truth by which to judge all other statements anyone makes. God's word. And just because some people around might say some nutty things, some wrong things, don't despise the word of God, brothers and sisters. Don't despise those who bring the word of God in preaching and teaching and instruction and counsel Don't despise it, test it, evaluate it, see that it's true and in line with the Apostles' teaching. Why? Because to refuse God's word is to quench the Spirit's work among us. To ignore, to reject, to distort, to pervert, to belittle, to disobey the word of God is to quench the Spirit who through his powerful word brings a ministry of peace to his church. And if we want to have peace in our church, well, we need to rally around the Word of God in every single ministry that we have. It is the central element teaching us to look to God and to understand Christ. To hold fast. Look, this is right there with it. To hold fast to what is good. It's not just goodness by our own definition. This is in the context of despising prophecies of the word of God. Hold fast to what is good, Paul says here in verse 21. Hold fast to all things good in the church spoken in the name of the the Lord from the word of God. For us particularly, that's the Bible. And then it brings us to this verse, which is the contrary to that. Abstain from every form of evil. Or it could be translated, abstain from every evil form every evil form of teaching, everything that takes us away. In other words, upon testing on the basis of the apostolic truth that we have in the scriptures that someone is speaking contrary to the word of God, it's a perversion of the gospel, separate from it, abstain from it. Don't go near it. If someone is speaking in the name of the Lord, something that is a perversion and contrary to his word, keep away from it because there is no peace in it. There's no true peace in it. We have so many forms of that today. Cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, deny the deity of Jesus. Those who try to preach a works salvation. Come to Jesus and he gives you grace, but you have to still work to get there. Roman Catholicism. How about... um, Those who call themselves liberal Christians and deny the absolute goodness and morality in the scriptures, stay away from it, abstain from it. Those who turn the gospel into a therapeutic feel-good message to attract crowds and never warn people of their sin and their need for repentance and faith in Jesus for salvation, stay away from it. Those who prey on the hurting and the frail with sensationalism and false promises of miracles, stay away from it. None of that brings peace. So brothers and sisters, Paul really wants this church in Thessalonica to know peace. And it's peace that comes through the protection of the one true saving gospel of Jesus in the word of God. He loves them. Do you know what? This word is inspired by God for us. God wants his people to know his peace in his church. God loves us. He loves us. So the unity and peace of the church depends on our individual responsibility to lead each other in Christ. That means we're going to be committed to long-suffering together, pointing each other consistently upward in prayer, rejoicing, thanksgiving to God, having a Godward focus, and never despising the ministry of the word among God's people. Let's be that church and let's have that peace. Let's pray.